chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. If you need a uh, Bible, you can raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you one from the back. Jeremiah 31. And Carde is going to read verses 2 through verse 18. morning. Thus says the Lord, people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I continue my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself of tambourines, and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again you shall plant vineyards of the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill of the country of Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save, my, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from, far, from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind, the lame, the pregnant woman, and, the, and she who is in labor. Together a great company they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by the brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare, in the, declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather, the, will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd keep his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hand from Hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Over the grain, the wine, the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their, light, their life shall be like a water garden. And they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance. And the young men and the old shall be merry. I would then... I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them, give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back, they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving, you, sh you have disciplined me, I was disciplined. Like an untrained calf, bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I have turned away, I relented, and after I, I was instructed, I was struck my thigh. 
I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do, I do remind him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. How does a rebel come home? Or another way we could ask that question is, do rebels come home? Sometimes? <laughs> All the time? Why doesn't a rebel come home? Well, I can think of three reasons why rebels might not come home. Number one would be shame. We've all seen it before. Someone slips, they fall, they go back to their addiction, they go back to whatever it is that has snared them. You don't see them again because there's shame. They just can't show their face, own up to their challenge. Another reason could be the spiral of addiction, the spiral of sin, the spiral of pleasure that we can find in the flesh, and we just continue to fall and over and over and over again and can't seem to get out of it. Or a third reason could simply be that they're not accepted. Can't come home because home won't let them back in. I remember when I was in high school, a friend of mine was kicked out of his house, and he was not allowed back in. He would sit on his porch, and the door would not open. There was no acceptance for the rebel. Well, within our human kingdom, there are many times where a rebel might not be accepted home. However, in the kingdom of God, what we discover is that God always receives rebels home. If you're a rebel this morning, I have good news for you. You can come home. You know, there might be somebody who's a rebel and they're here for the first time wondering if God would receive them back. And I have good news for you. There is a road home. Maybe there's someone here who is a rebel in your heart and nobody knows it but you. Like you know how to put on the show on Sundays or when you're around people. You know how to look good, but the reality, there's some serious rebellion going on on the inside. And friend, if that's you, I have good news for you as well. There is a road home for rebels. I want to speak to you this morning on this theme, how a rebel comes home. How a rebel comes home. In verse 18, we see this line which sticks out to me. It reads, bring me back that I, that I may be restored. This is the cry of the rebel. Bring me back that I may be restored. As we get into this, let's go to God. Let's ask for His help as we study His Word. Father, we come to You. We recognize that we are helpless without You. We ask that You would use 
this word to speak to us this morning. We recognize that your word is powerful. It is true. It is convicting. God, convict us. It is healing. God, heal us this morning. Let us experience Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In chapter 31 of Jeremiah, there are two themes, two images, that of a prodigal and that of an adulterous wife. Now, if you have been tracking with us, one thing you remember is that these people are in exile. These are exiles in Babylon. They are are people who have rebelled against God, and Babylon has come in and taken away the first 10,000 exiles into Babylon. In chapter 30, we see that there is hope. In chapter 30, we see that there is healing for what is called the incurable wound which is good news for those who are in exile, for those who are feeling the pain of this wound. What we're going to see next week is that there's even a new covenant that's coming. And we'll hold off until next week. We're saving that. Today what we see, though, is poetry. Chapter 31 is beautiful poetry. And there are these two poetic images that are used to make a big, powerful statement to these exiles. The first one is that of a prodigal. The second one is that of an adulterous wife. If you were to actually read this in the original language, what you would see is is that they are referred to in masculine, and then they're referred to, Israel's referred to in the feminine, and then the masculine, and then the feminine. We see that there is this image of the masculine prodigal son, come home, the feminine adulterous wife, come home. We see, in addition to these two images, we see the father, an image of the father who's coming for after the prodigal son. And we see this image of this husband who is coming for this adulterous wife. Let me give you a breakdown of this text before we dive into what it means for us today. First, in the first couple verses, in verses 2 through 6, we see that God promises that there will be a return. To these exiles in Babylon, God promises a return. In verse 2, He likens their exile to the wilderness. When you hear wilderness, you think of what in the Bible? The wilderness, wanderings, Moses. This is the image that would immediately come to mind when they hear wilderness. God is likening this exile to that of the wilderness. We remember in the wilderness, Israel was faithless. And even though they were faithless, God in the wilderness proved faithful. In the same way, in verse 3, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you with a love that is not going anywhere any time. In verse 4 and 5, we see he's going to do it again. There are three, three agains here. First, again, I'm going to build you up. Second, again, you're going to celebrate and you're going to praise. Third, again, you're going to plant and eat. You're going to enjoy your labor. The second section here in verses 7 through 14 could fall under this heading. The prodigal is coming home. So there is going to be a return, and then he gets a little clear with this picture, this poetic image, the prodigal is coming home. So in verses 7 through 8, there is a cause for celebration. 
The, the celebration, by the way, for Israel is to not be like a funeral dirge. It's not to be this sad lament, but rather this is going to be a celebration with shouts and with loud singing, it says. Look at verse 8. He says, Behold, I will bring them from the north country, gather them from the farthest parts. Among them will be the blind, the lame, the pregnant women, woman and she who is in labor together. A great company shall return here. Meaning all kinds of people are coming back, including the broken, those who are blind, and those who are lame. In verse 9, we see this image of a prodigal coming home with tears in his eyes. With weeping they shall come. With pleas of mercy, I will lead them back. In verse 11, for the Lord has ransomed Jacob. He's redeemed him from hands that are too strong for him. So, to summarize here, 7 through 9, we see that there's a cause for celebration. Why? Because the prodigal is coming home. In verses 10 through 14, what we see is that there is this announcement given to the nations. So all of the surrounding nations who have seen Israel plundered and seen them taken off into exile, and they probably have mocked the God of Israel, as it seems that Israel is failing in this moment, essentially what he's saying in verses 10 through 14 is, is God will not be mocked. I'm doing something here. And these people are still my people, and they are coming home. Third, we see a mother's tears dried. Starting in verse 12, we see Rachel. Now who is Rachel? If, you, if you're not really familiar with the Bible... You, you're probably rightly so under uh, a little confused when you see that Rachel is crying. Who is Rachel and why does she need to have tears that are wiped away? Well, Rachel here is the mother of Jacob. Jacob was renamed Israel. Rachel is, is, is imaged here as the mother of this prodigal who is gone. And the mother of the prodigal is in tears. But this isn't a passage about weeping. This isn't a passage about tears. As a matter of fact, as it goes on, this is a passage about tears being dried up. He says, dry your tears. There is no more weeping. Why? Verse 17, your children are coming back. Verse 18, we see the child's response. By the way, when you see the word Ephraim, don't let that confuse you. That's just a nickname for Israel. Think of Israel as the son named Ephraim. Ephraim's response is, is bring me back so I can come back in verse 18. Finally, in the last couple verses, 21 through 30, we see that there's a new creation. All things are being made new. There is a, a road. Mark the road. Know the way home, O prodigal. Verses 26 through 30. We see that there is just simply a, a, a promise given that children are not going to bear the sins of their fathers. I think it's probably likely that these exiles were wondering whether or not they are forever going to be held responsible for their father's sins. And here we just see a, a, a short word given by God in which God says, no, everybody's going to be responsible for their own sins. 
And while, you're simple, while, while you are experiencing the exile brought on by your fathers, you are not personally responsible for the rebellion of your ancestors. Well, this is the, an overview, if you would, of this passage. The question that I want to ask this morning is this. What does any of this have to do with us today? Is this just simply a passage for those who are in exile thousands of years ago, wondering if they're ever going to come home, and then there's a promise saying, yes, you're going to come home. How do we apply this for us today? Remember when I was a child, we drove to Colorado. Somehow our minivan made it there from Ohio, by God's grace. I remember driving toward uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we were a long ways away. But what you could see in the distance was a mountain range. One of the mountains is called Pikes Peak. It's one of the most beautiful peaks in Colorado. And I remember as a child, I think I was in seventh grade, I remember seeing this mountain range. It was the first time I've ever seen a mountain range like this before. I've, I've, I've never seen something so beautiful, so magnificent. I remember the first time I saw it, my, my, my dad or my mom said, hey, that's Pike's Peak, and I was staring at it, and it literally just looked like a two-dimensional picture. You know what I'm saying? Like just one big, flat mountain. But then as we got closer, I was a little confused because I didn't quite see the whole thing anymore, but we started to experience the mountain. Does that make sense? As we got closer, what I saw was that this mountain range was not actually one two-dimensional picture, but that it was actually very three-dimensional. The mountain range was actually one smaller peak followed by a larger peak followed by a larger peak, and that together made up the whole picture. Are you tracking with me? Now somebody say, what does this have to do about, with prophecy? What does this have to do with prophecy? Well, here's the reality. Like a mountain range, God's prophecies that he gives first look very two-dimensional, don't they? There's going to be a comeback, there's going to be a return, and everything is going to change, everything is going to be good, you're going to be transformed, there's going to be a, 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 a complete new creation, there's going to be a, a, pro, pro, a fruit in the land, life is going to be good. It looks very two-dimensional, two this big, beautiful picture. As, however, we experience prophecy, it's actually much more three-dimensional. And we, we, we realize that there are multiple peaks of fulfillment, if you would. There is one smaller peak followed by a larger peak followed by a larger peak, which together make up the entire prophecy. Let me explain how that fits into Matthew 31. In the year 538, we see that first peak. We see that first horizon of fulfillment, if you would. In the year 538, that's when Israel started to go home. So there was literally a return for the exiles. They actually went back to the promised land. However, 
as we discussed last week, this demands a sequel. Because there's a lot of realities, there's a lot of fulfillment from this prophecy that hasn't yet been realized. So for example, here in this chapter, they are called, according to verse 21, a pure bride, a virgin. Well, as we look at Israel returned around the year 538, as if you think of Israel, you know, around the time of the New Testament, we wouldn't describe them as pure, as sinless, would we? There were some tribes that were returned, but not all the tribes, which was prophesied here. There needs to be a return of every tribe. They're described in this return as being radiant. Well, I wouldn't necessarily call the Pharisaic system of the New Testament, Israel, radiant, would you? There, there is described here a complete remaking of the people, where they, they're, they're just transformed into something entirely new. Now, all this to say, this first horizon, which we saw historically around the year 538, is indeed a fulfillment of the prophecy, but it demands a sequel. It demands that there be more than this. There's got to be some more peaks to this mountain range. We haven't seen the whole of Pike's Peak yet. I know that it's bigger than this. Are you guys tracking with me? So what do we see? Well, let's get into the New Testament. As we get into the New Testament, we see that Matthew starts quoting Jeremiah. So for instance, Matthew, at the beginning of Jesus' life, quotes verse 15 here in Jeremiah chapter 31. He quotes this this poetic line, Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children. When does Matthew quote that? Well, he quotes that after Jesus is born, and you have Herod trying to kill the baby Jesus, right? You guys remember this part of the Gospels? And uh, there there are many, many young children, two and under, who are slaughtered. And here, Matthew says this happened to fulfill verse 15 of Jeremiah 31. What's happening now is a lot like what we saw back here. Something is happening. But remember, this is a passage not just about weeping, but about tears being dried. Why? Well, as the text goes on, there is a son who's coming back. So what Matthew is seeing is while these Babies are being slaughtered, and there is reason for Rachel to be weeping now. There are mothers that are crying. What he's saying is is that tears will be dried because there is a son in the enemy's land who is about to come back. Matthew goes on, and he also quotes verse 8, which says that when this return happens, there are going to be the blind and the lame who come. So as Jesus is going around in his ministry, and we see in Matthew, the blind and the lame are constantly coming to Jesus. Is this just about blind people or lame people? No, Matthew's making a statement, isn't he? Granted, yes, there is good hope for people who have sicknesses, who are blind and lame, that they will have bodies that are remade, yes. 
But Matthew is making a statement about something that Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing is he is bringing in this final ingathering of God's people. And we see that this, this final return of exiles, this final return of people who are trapped in sin and in death and they're coming home to the promised land in the days of Jesus, what Matthew's saying is that is happening. Don't you see the blind and the lame are coming? Do you remember Jeremiah? It's happening now. Jesus is beginning this return. And here we are 2,000 years now into it. We are living in this reality in which we see every tribe and every tongue coming to Christ, confessing Christ as the gospel goes around the globe, and one day we will see that final peak of God's glory as Jesus returns. And in Revelation, it says that he who is sitting on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. This is a passage for us. It's a passage for those of you who are rebels, who need to come home. It's a passage for those of you who are, are rebels on the inside like nobody knows, or rebels on the outside like everybody knows. It's a passage for those who have shame. It's a, it's a passage for those who are broken from their past to have great hope that there is a road home and that there is a promised land and that there is a people that you belong to in Christ. So how does a rebel come home? How does a rebel come home? Rebels wake up. Rebels at some point realize the mistake they made. You know, in sadness, I say, I've, I have had so many moments in my ministry and, and just with friends where I've, I've told people who are rebelling against God, I've said, you know, at some point you're going to wake up to the reality of, of this. And it's going to be sad, it's going to hurt. At some point, rebels wake up. And they realize, what have I done? Listen, you might not even be there yet. This is still for you in case you get there. If that point comes, you need to know that there is a road home. So how do we get home? Number one, we turn back by God's power. Number one, we turn back by God's power. There was a 13-year-old boy who was having issues with his mother, and he says to his mother, I hate you. And he refuses to talk to her. He refuses to break. And she takes her hands and gently places her hands on both of his cheeks. And she turns his face toward her. And she says, I love you. And with that, tears start coming down his face. Look at the text. Look at verse 18. You see that line, bring me back that I may be restored? I've heard Ephraim grieving. 
You have disciplined me. I was disciplined like an untrained calf. This is the response of the son. This is the rebel. This is the prodigal, the wayward son who refuses to look. The, the son says, I'm disciplined. I feel it. And then the son cries out, bring me back that I may be restored. That line can literally be translated, cause me to turn, and I will turn. Or turn my face toward you, and I will turn toward you. Isn't that interesting? Man, those of you who have been in rebellion before, you know how impossible it is to turn yourself. For those of you who have been in rebellion before, you know the cry of the rebel, which is, God, I can't. Cause me to turn, and I will turn. Listen, the first step we've got to understand is that our turning back to God is utterly impossible on our own. We don't trust in our own strength to do this. We don't have it in us. We are utterly unable to turn back to God in our own power. Think of Lazarus dead in the grave. And Jesus says to Lazarus, come forth. Do you realize Jesus gave him a command that he could not follow? How can Lazarus come out of the grave? How can a dead man get up? Well, Jesus does something for him. Jesus causes him to obey. The, the call of God on Lazarus calls, causes Lazarus to wake up, and now that Lazarus is up, what does he do? He obeys, which means the obedience, check this out, was still on Lazarus. He still had to get up. He still had to take off. It's not like he's just a, 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 a chessboard and, or a, what are these stringed puppet sort of things? We call them puppets? He's not just like a puppet and God is causing him to do things, but God gives him the desire, the ability, the strength to obey, and he does. This is what God does for rebels. And those of you who have been in rebellion before can testify to this, can't you? We could probably spend the rest of our time right now, which we won't, but we could, just giving testimony of how I was in rebellion and God brought me back by His strength. Now, the experience, experience of it feels like I'm trudging forward one step at a time. Like it feels very much so on me. But as I look back at my rebellion and how I came out of it, what I can clearly see now is it wasn't me at all. It was God giving me the strength. When I was in college, I knew a man who left his wife, was driving down the road. He got about a half hour away, and he stopped underneath a bridge, and he burst out into tears and he turned his car around and went home. And when he looks back on that, he says, I don't know why I did. Like, I was so dead set on leaving, and God turned me back. 
Like for those of you who have been in rebellion before, if I were to sit down and have some conversation with you, I would press and I would ask, so why did, he, why did you come back? Well, I, I came back because I felt bad. Why did you feel bad? I felt bad because I all of a sudden started to have a new desire. Why did you have this new desire? You see what I'm saying? Like, what happened? What we see happening for rebellious Israel is that God is going to cause them to turn, and as a result, they will turn. God, give us new minds. God, give us new desires so that we as rebels might come home. Number two. Number two. We turn back by God's power, number one. Number two, God gives us this grace because we are his children. Now check this out. I'm speaking to Christians right now. In your rebellion, you're still his child. He gives rebels, meaning someone who is in Christ and they have turned from him and they are on their own, the grace to come back because he or she is his child. How many of you had a dog growing up? All right, in your home, who was more valuable, you or the dog? The dog was outside. The dog was outside. <laughs> you know, I can imagine a, uh, I can imagine a man who has, a, let's say, a six-month-old baby and uh, a dog that he got around the same time, six-month-old dog. Now, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but dogs progress a whole lot quicker than babies. Like, by six months, your dog is much more obedient than your six-month-old baby, right? And actually, your dog at six months shows you a whole lot more affection than your six-month-old baby shows you. But which is more valuable? Like, uh, we wouldn't want it to come to this, but if it came to it and you had to choose between life or death, which one would you choose? Well, you choose your son, right? Because this is your son. Sons have incredible value. And by the way, women, I... The Bible, when the Bible uses the word sons, the Bible recognizes we're talking about women as well. Let me, can I just say a quick word on sons? Because I'm going to say son a whole lot for the rest of my sermon. And I don't want the ladies to think, well, he wasn't talking to me. Never said daughter. I heard Tim Keller put it this way. He said, um, what's, what's really interesting in the New Testament is that God calls not just men sons, but women are his sons as well. Who were the inheritors of the father's wealth? It was the firstborn son. So to call a woman a son, one of his sons, sonship, is actually to say that she is equally an inheritor of the father's goods. Are you tracking with me? So can we use the word sons? We're all on the same page. Look at verse 20. 
The prodigal is gone. The prodigal is out. The prodigal has run away. This is God's words. The father, in verse 20, poetically, he says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have compassion on him. He's ran away. He's squandered the father's goods. He's lost. He's hated his father. He's turned to his lovers. He's not recognized that his father is the giver of all good gifts, but he's my son. And how often I speak against him, I will still remember him because he's my son. Church, your rebellion is not good. It's not pretty. Rebellion is ugly. Rebellion hurts. It hurts you and it hurts others. But family, your rebellion doesn't make God love you less. Your rebellion, if you are in Christ, your rebellion doesn't take away your sonship. God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those he, fill in the blank, Love, thank you, Montreal. Somebody was listening. God disciplines those he loves. Who does he love? He loves his sons. Yes, we experience the discipline of God, but we don't lose our sonship. And as a result, he says, my heart yearns for Ephraim. I will surely show mercy on him. Listen, human relationships fall apart. Some of you may not have a relationship with your own father. Because our human relationships can be very fickle. And there can be a sense in which a father might not return his love to his repentant son. But the love that Israel has with God is a love that is based on a covenant that God made with Father Abraham. And God is faithful to his covenant even when we are unfaithful to God. The covenant brings Israel into this family nature with God. Now, as we move forward, what we're going to see next week is that there's a new covenant that is going to be made. This is the covenant that we have with Jesus Christ. By his own shed blood on the cross, Christ paid for our sins and brought us into a relationship with God. We now, the Bible says, are in Christ. Let's do some logic together. If God is faithful to his son, and his son is Jesus Christ, and we are in a covenant relationship with Christ, therefore we're in Christ, therefore God will always be faithful to us because we're in him. Number three, God shows the road home. He shows us the road home. We see this, this in verse 21, this call to set up road markers for yourself, make yourself guideposts, meaning you're coming home. Remember the road. Remember the road. Re- know how to get home. Know where the road is. Follow the guideposts. 
you are coming home. How does God bring us home? What is the road home? Well, it is not, let me get myself together. I hate that phrase. I hate it. I really do. I despise that phrase. I pray that everybody in this room will never again use the phrase, i got to get myself together first. You don't get yourself together. i got to change myself. You don't change yourself. That's not the road home. What's the road home? Well, John 3.16 is pretty clear. For God, sent his, for God so loved the world that God sent His Son into the world. Who is the road home? It's Christ. Listen, friends, those of you who are in rebellion or you know what rebellion feels like, rebellion for a Christian, the, the rebel finds the road home in the same way that we found our way to Christ in the first place. That is through repentance and trusting Him. There's no magic pill. The gospel is not just for us when we're eight years old and become a Christian. The gospel is for us every day of our lives. And for those Christians who have fallen away and they're rebels and they realize it and they recognize, like, I can't turn myself. God caused me to turn. Uh, give, me, give me some hope. Give me, give, me, give me some new desires. As God causes us to turn, what is the road home? It's the same road we've always trod, and that is the road of Jesus Christ trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection. And what we see here, lastly, is that God does the impossible for the rebel. He does the impossible for the rebel. A man named John was an addict. And he got to the point in his addiction where he just believed change was hopeless. He would never change. He says, you know, the kind of change that we see, like, say, a frog becoming a prince or a servant becoming a princess, that's only in fairy tales. That's not real life. Family, is change real life? Can God actually bring complete change into our lives. What we see here in Jeremiah 31 is absolutely yes. I don't know if you noticed this as Carde was reading, but let me point something out to you in this text. There are these two images that are used interchangeably through Jeremiah 31. One is that of a prodigal son, and one is that of an adulterous wife. By the end of Jeremiah 31, the prodigal son has been transformed into a darling child. And the adulterous wife has been transformed into a virgin bride. How does that happen? It's impossible. This kind of change that's happening here is impossible. And Jeremiah recognizes that. Look at verse 22. The second half of verse 22, he says, For the Lord has created a new thing on earth. Like in the same way, ex nihilo, he created all things, he is ex nihilo creating something new in you. 
the Lord has created a new thing on this earth. And then he gives us this really weird phrase. He says, a woman encircles a man. Now, the best commentaries, as I read them, I, nobody really knows what that means. But what everybody thinks it means is the impossible's happening. Meaning this is probably an old proverbial saying, something like when pigs fly or when hell freezes over. What he's saying is, is that the impossible has taken place. The adulterous wife has been and is being transformed into a virgin bride. And the prodigal son is being transformed into a darling child. He's doing a new thing. And we see Christ. And as we see Christ, we are changed from one degree of glory to the next. And according to Romans 8, 28 through 30, He's going to keep changing us and working in us until all things are made new and Jesus comes back and we're given new bodies. Revelation 21.5, and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Brothers and sisters, your sin does not define you. Family, your failings do not define you. What defines you is Christ. You are a son being remade into a spotless bride. There isn't an adulterer out there that God cannot change. There isn't a prodigal son out there that God cannot change. There isn't a thief out there that God can't change. There isn't a racist out there that God can't change. There isn't a bigot out there that God can't change. Or a sexist out there that God can't change. There is nobody out there that God can't change. And as I look at you guys, I see a whole lot of people who God has changed. Like even as, as I know what I was going to be preaching on this morning, I'm looking around the room as we're singing and I'm just praising God for the stories that I know in this room of rebels who have come home. God is doing the impossible and He's going to continue doing the impossible until we are glorified. Why? Verse 3, He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love but he was so far off. He squandered all of your goods. He was a rebel. He hated you. He abused you. He took advantage of your grace. But he's my son. He's my son. And as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. You know, we call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. I don't think that that's the correct title for Jeremiah. Don't get me wrong, there's weeping in here. I think a better title for Jeremiah is Jeremiah is the prophet of hope. He's the prophet of hope, and chapter 31 is filled with it. What is our response to this? Well, in verse 4, we see tambourines. Also in verse 4, we see dancing. In verse 7, we see loud singing. We also see shouting. 
In verse 7, we see praise. In verse 12, we see more singing. In verse 13, we see mourning is turned into joy. In verse 13, we see that those rebels have comfort. We see that weary souls are satisfied in verse 23. That is the future for the rebel. You're here this morning. I want you to know, turn to Christ. That is your future. This kind of celebration, this kind of joy, this kind of praise. The road home is clear. Do what you know. Come back to your first love and trust in Christ. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can come to this passage that you have preserved for us and that it speaks today in the same way that it has spoken for so many years. God, I pray that we would be encouraged as people who have wandering and rebellious hearts to know that there is always a road home, that Christ always stands ready. And I pray, God, that we would come to Him, cling to Him, trust in Him, and know that we have a future in Him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.